Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled, Who Wants to Wait? It's a guest essay by Lindsay Crittenton, the author of the book, The Water Will Hold You, A Skeptic Learns to Pray. She lives in San Francisco where she teaches writing and is an active member of All Saints Episcopal Church. You can visit Lindsay Crittenton online at www.lindsaycrittenden.com. Her essay, Who Wants to Wait?, is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 23, 2007, the fourth Sunday in Advent. When I was six years old, we moved from a small house on a street full of children and bicycles to a bigger house up on the hill. Our new neighbors consisted of retired Navy admirals and old ladies who wore faded housecoats to check their mail every afternoon. And this was supposed to be a move up? And then I met Karen. Karen was my age, and she lived only four houses away. We bonded instantly. She was a tomboy who climbed trees and rode horses. I was shy and timid and loved to read books. We were inseparable, yin to the other's yang. We listened to Peter, Paul, and Mary and played with plastic horses and drew murals and taped fortunes with dirty words onto plain fortune cookies, which we then sold from a card table to unsuspecting neighbors. When her parents split, she and her mother moved away. Now Karen came to town every few months to see her father, and to stop by to see us. One year, one year she was coming to visit on a Tuesday. I woke that morning knowing that, quote, today Karen is coming, end quote. The school day passed in a blur, waiting for four o'clock when Karen and her dad would arrive. Tuesday was the day of my weekly piano lesson at the house of my teacher who lived about a mile from school. Usually I walked home, taking my time as long as I got home by dinner. But that Tuesday, my mother would pick me up in time for Karen's visit. I don't remember the piano lesson. I don't remember my mother picking me up. I don't remember Karen's arrival or what we did when she did arrive. What I remember is the waiting, the delicious tingle of anticipation as I walked through Mr. McFarland's yard to his house, where the side-by-side -side pianos waited. After the lesson, I would see Karen. I do remember the bay trees growing on either side of the walkway, the slight incline of a pebbled path up to his back door, the wall of windows overlooking the trees and hidden from the street below. I noticed those things with intense awareness, the splotching of shadow at my feet, the way the fragrance of the bay trees was stronger at the bend in the path than on the straightaway. It was a path that I walked every Tuesday for piano lessons, but I was noticing it for the first time. It's been several years since I've seen Karen, and when I think of her I remember different episodes. The corner of her parents' living room where she lay, as cheerful as ever in a hospital bed, the shelves in her bedroom where she kept her plastic horses, 
the turntable on which we played Lemon Tree and puffed the magic dragon over and over. I recall our long confidences once we became teenagers about the boys we kissed and the boys we wanted to kiss. But no matter which detail I latch on, all of them are suffused with the power of that three-minute walk up Mr. McFarland's path, that power of waiting. This year, I spent the second week of Advent in silence at the Bishop's Ranch, a retreat center of the Episcopal Diocese of California in Healdsburg. There, in the slumbering beauty of Sonoma County vineyards in December, where the fog hugs the Russian River in the morning and where overnight frost delineates each vein on the fallen oak leaves, I thought a lot about waiting. My first few days, I found myself waiting for the bell to ring for breakfast, waiting for the bell to ring for lunch, waiting for dusk, my favorite time of day to go for a long walk on the ranch grounds. And then, as my body settled into the silence and began to notice the slant of light through the redwoods, the rustle of the birds in the hedge outside the window, the taste of the communion wine every day at 11.30 Eucharist, I stopped molding my present around future events. That is, I started living in the moment, unplanned. I got up for no particular reason and walked I didn't know where. I was still waiting, but I was resting in the waiting, enjoying it as palpably as I had enjoyed it that Tuesday afternoon when I was 12 years old. This seemed a particular joy, a seeming paradox the Church has chosen to commemorate in a separate liturgical season. Adventus means coming in Latin, and the propers for it are all about anticipation. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare a way, make a straight path, the lion shall lie down with the lamb, and a little child shall lead them. This Sunday, the fourth Ad, the fourth week in Advent, we get the payoff, or rather in two days we do, when we celebrate Christmas. For this Sunday, we see in the Gospel reading Matthew's interest in proving Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Throughout the 28 chapters of his Gospel, Matthew reminds us again and again how the baby born in Bethlehem is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He tells us again and again how such and such happened to fulfill Scripture. At the beginning of Matthew, we have genealogy. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David. Fourteen from David to the exile in Babylon. Fourteen from Babylon to Messiah. That's lots of waiting. And then, in Matthew verse 18... Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. We can hear an editorial edge, a need to explain how it took place, quote, in this way, end quote. Don't births all take place in basically the same way? But this isn't any birth. This wasn't any conception. Matthew goes on to tell of an announcement by an angel of the Lord, not the Annunciation to Mary, so beautifully told in Luke's Gospel, but the tale told to Joseph, 
just as that good man had resolved to dismiss Mary quietly. What else might he do when his fiancée finds herself with child? He is, after all, a righteous man. The story, All 42 Generations, gets interesting now. It's not just a list of names sprinkled a few times with those of women, and not just any women, but Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, and Mary, women of a scandalous or unusual sexual union, as one person put it, a prostitute-turned-spy, a foreigner, a rape victim, and an unwed pregnant teenager. It's a story today, and a fascinating one, a human one, an unmarried, unwed maiden, a betrothed man, and an angel who appears and tells him to do right by her. All this, says Matthew, took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Joseph did right by her, and that had to be in some ways as terrifying, as trusting, as transformative as Mary's acceptance of the message given to her. Who knows what angels will say, and when, and how? Who knows how we will respond? Can we do so with love and openness of heart? Growing up, I didn't know that Advent was its own season. I thought it was nothing more than the kind of calendar my mother would prop on the kitchen counter for my brother and me. The size of a small poster, the Advent calendar, a tradition started by German Lutherans, my mother's heritage and now morphed into kitschy quilted stockings and interactive websites, these calendars had printed out on it a stock wintry scene, snow, sleighs, starlight, frolicking children, and scored squares for each day up to 24. Every December morning, my brother and I pushed aside our cereal bowls to find the square corresponding to the date and took turns folding it back to reveal the scene beneath. And there it was, fun to find, but always a bit disappointing. A toboggan, a cup of cider, a boy frolicking with a dog, and then, under 24, the largest square of all, the scene to best all the others, the mother, the man, the babe, all glowing in the warm yellow light of the manger. And that was it, 24 squares. I didn't understand. Didn't December have 31 days? My mother explained it to me, but I continued to feel cheated somehow. As much as I loved Christmas Eve as a girl, that was the night the family gathered at our house, I felt a letdown when it was over. The tattered wrapping paper underfoot, the brand new gifts already lost their luster. My brother and I would look at each other over the Christmas breakfast table. We knew it was over. The next thing would be putting on scratchy dress-up clothes and getting in the car to drive over to our grandfather's for Christmas. The gifts had all been given. All that was left was the tedious dinner at which my aunt drank too much, my father grumbled under his breath, 
My grandfather got wimpy singing Stille Nacht, and my brother and I slunk off to the den to watch TV. But as an adult, I've chosen to observe Advent as four distinct weeks. I try to ignore the lights everywhere, as pretty as they are, and wait until the 23rd to buy my tree. I keep an Advent wreath on the dining room table and light the candles every night. Once the 24th arrives, out come the ornaments and the baubles and the Christmas songs, and up they stay for all 12 days. Christmas Day can still feel heavy with sadness, especially the, pa especially the past 10 years as my family has gone from an extended group of 16 people to a small group of four, a small core of four. For many in our society, this season with its imposed good cheer and parties and consumerism can be a time of despair. And I understand that now more than I ever have. I've experienced a lot of loss, and old traditions have died along with the people who installed them. And Jesus, despite the babies and the creches and the joyful carols, can seem no more immediate than he did the day before. And as for peace on earth, goodwill to men, well, it's not here either. At least not yet. But what can we do to bring it closer? To bring Jesus closer. What can I do right here, right now? We're still waiting, even today. But that doesn't let us off the hook. That doesn't mean we give up. Waiting is more than a recipe for letdown, a puritanical message of self-denial. If you really want it, you'll still want it in six months, my mother used to say when I begged for some new toy in June. Nor is waiting an invitation to passivity. I don't need to do a thing, we all too easily can think, as we walk by the mess or the person with outstretched hand. Someone else will take care of it. Waiting can be both delicious and austere, a pleasure and a gift. In it, we live and we love. It's how we wait that matters, in anticipation, with thanks and in love. Amen. A guest essay by author Lindsay Crittenton for the fourth Sunday in Advent. For books this week, we have a guest book review by Katie Finley. Katie Finley reviews the book Infidel by Ayan Hersey Ali. New York, Free Press, 2007, 353 pages. A guest book review by Katie Finley. Ayan Hersey Ali's remarkable life story alone would make this book worth reading. But it's not her life story that makes it necessary for her to have bodyguards. Rather, the controversial statements she has made about Islam growing out of her own personal experiences are the trigger for those who seek to kill her. Ayan Hirsi Ali is a Somalia woman who grew up in Kenya, Saudi Arabia, and Ethiopia. 
Reading about her life gives the Western reader insights into Somali clan heritage and civil war. Female genital excision, the restrictions on women in Saudi Arabia, and the magnetic pull of Islamic fundamentalism. In Kenya, she grew even more devout in Islam, wearing the most concealing garments she could find while attending meetings where earnest young people studied the radical ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood. However, the books she read in her youth were all permeated with revolutionary Western ideas. For example, even in Nancy Drew, she encountered an independent heroine free to act without the permission and supervision of men. Most of all, she writes, I think it was the novels that saved me from submission. Despite her objections, her father signed a contract to marry her to a Canadian Somali man. Passing through Europe on her way to Canada, she escaped from her relatives and applied for asylum in Holland. Dutch life was a revelation to her. The equality of women, conflict resolution through negotiation rather than force, and the fact that society functions seamlessly without any reference to God. Observing the peace and prosperity of a non-Islamic society challenged her lifelong assumptions. Her work as a Dutch Somali translator took her into the dark corners of Holland, police stations, women's shelters, clinics where she came to recognize the consistent pattern of abuse of Muslim women by husbands and fathers. After the World Trade Center terrorist attacks, Ali concluded that the ideas which led to militant Islam and the oppression of women came from the Koran itself, not from external radical influences. As she began to reject Islam and speak out about the cruel treatment of Muslim women in Holland, a Dutch political group invited her to run as a candidate for parliament. Her election and high-profile opinions brought death threats and bodyguards, but Theo van Gogh, with whom she created a film protesting the position of women in Islam, refused protection and was assassinated. A challenge to the legality of her Dutch citizenship caused her to immigrate to the United States, where she's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. The questions Ali raises in her book are worth discussing within Western society and with Muslim leaders. Is the Koran really the source of the cruel treatment of women found in many Muslim societies? Does militant Islam derive from a correct or from a twisted reading of the words of the Koran? The book Infidel is both compelling and provocative, an important contribution to the debate over religious values, women, and civil society. Ayan Hirsi Ali. The name of the book is Infidel, and that was a guest review by Katie Finley. For books this week, uh, excuse me, for films this week, I review a film called David Blaine, Fearless. It's from the year 2002. Pick a card, put it back into the deck, then splatter the deck of cards against a store window.
The card you chose stuck to the inside of the window and now faces out towards you. Or the same trick, but the card ends up inside the firefighter's shoe or in the kid's back pocket. David Blaine, born in 1973, has taken his act to the streets, whether to the locker room of the Dallas Cowboys, to ghetto kids, vacationers, or to everyday people in the Mojave Desert, and even in Haiti. His feats of physical endurance are just weird, like placing his palm on the pavement and then rotating his body 225 degrees, or standing upright in a block of ice for 62 hours in Times Square. His mind-reading tricks are even weirder, like asking you to think of an important person than having that name appear as a tattoo on his chest underneath his shirt. All these tricks are amazing, but, a but at 110 minutes, this film drags on. Fearless is a documentary that collects David Blaine's three ABC television specials, the first of which was called Street Magic in 1996, then in 1998 one called Magic Man, and then finally in the year 2000, Frozen in Time. Everyone knows that these tricks have an explanation, but the reward in viewing them is all in the reactions of the spectator participants, which in David Blaine's up-close-and-personal style is off the charts. And so I recommend David Blaine, Fearless, from the year 2002. Finally this week, for Advent, we've posted one of my all-time favorite poems by a British woman author, U.A. Fanthorpe, who was born in 1929. The title of her poem is simply B.C.A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. B.C. A.D. by the poet U.A. Fanthorpe Thank you for joining us for Sunday, December 23rd, 2007, the fourth Sunday in Advent. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin.